Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a new podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. Attentions are turned to Iraq today as the trial of Saddam Hussein. One of the most notorious figures in the Middle Tensions East stands trial. The former dictator is now on trial in Iraq, and some officials are already saying that he could face the death penalty. It's 2005. All around the world, people are glued to their televisions. It's an historic event, perhaps the first time ever that an Arab leader is publicly indicted for war crimes. Viewers watch with almost morbid fascination as former Iraqi ruler Saddam Hussein stands trial on charges of mass murder. It's the culmination of his near quarter of a century rule over Iraq. Saddam arrives in the courtroom in Iraq's capital, impeccably groomed, wearing a tailored suit, his black beard turning white. He looks gaunt, but alert, confident, even calm. When asked to confirm his identity to the court, he snaps back at the judge. You don't know my name? You don't know my name? Seriously? Why would the honorable judge ask me who I am? Come on, what a stupid question. Who doesn't know who I am? Saddam is 68 years old. In one year, he'll be dead. In this episode of Hindsight, we hear from Saddam Hussein, who refuses to identify himself during his trial or to recognize the authority of the court believing himself to be the one true ruler of Iraq. Was he delusional, a tyrannical mastermind, or a well-meaning countryman whose convictions led him to a life of militant nationalism? This is the story of his life, based on documented events and his own words. Someone turned down the AC in here. It's terrible from my back. I want to feel like it's summer in Iraq. I bet you couldn't wait for that noose to be wrapped around my neck. Oh, and in case you were about to ask, like that damn judge, I am Saddam Hussein al-Majid, President of the Republic of Iraq. You can write that down. There have been lies and lies told about me. Now it's my turn to tell my story. My real story. I'm not the dictator my enemies and the media accuse me of being. The first thing that you should know, my conscience is clear. Before me, Iraq was drowning in poverty, illiteracy, and endless coups. After I came to power, Iraq flourished. Our economy was strong. Our society was rich. Our military was powerful. I was feared by all our enemies. 
and I rose to power against all odds. Maybe you don't know how harsh our lives were in my hometown, Al-Awja, when I was a child. If you can even call them lives. It was more like we were waiting to die. Do you even know where Al-Awja is? I didn't think so. It's a tiny village on the western bank of the Tigris. 160 kilometers north of Baghdad. Al-Awja was the birthplace of my misery, but also my greatest inspiration. In 1937, when I was born, the village had nothing. No drinking water or electricity, no roads or schools. Our houses were clay shacks. My father, Hussein, was a poor shepherd, or so I'm told. I never met him. He disappeared before I was born. I also had a brother who died of cancer before I was born. My mother could barely contain or survive her own grief. I survived, of course, despite the odds. But that's what my name means. Saddam, the one who confronts. Mother remarried a man named Ibrahim al-Hassa when I was a small child. They had three sons together. My half-brothers were probably the only good thing that came from that. My stepfather never accepted me. He beat me. Humiliated me. And when my mother tried to protect me, he beat her too. He refused to let me go to school. Instead, he made me sell watermelons on the train to feed his family. He made sure I never had a childhood. By the time I was 10 years old, I couldn't take it anymore. I left home to live with my uncle in Baghdad and never looked back. My uncle was Khairallah Tulfa, a devout Sunni Muslim, a nationalist and a veteran. Instead of beating me, he educated me. He showed me how flawed the monarchy was and how Western imperialism ravaged our country. And he was the reason I finally got to go to school. When I finished, I tried to enter the military academy, but they rejected me. So I got into politics. I joined the local sector of the Pan-Arab Socialist Party, Ba'ath. And that was just when things in Iraq started heating up. Explosive news from the Middle East. A military coup and mob revolt in Iraq toppled King Faisal from the throne. His uncle Prince It was 1958. Out with the monarchies and the upper crust. They assassinated King Faisal, the second one, and other members of the royal family right there in the courtyard of the palace, Qasr al-Rahab. <laughs> That's one good way to ensure there won't be any heirs. Iraq was finally a republic. Brigadier Abdul Karim Qasim and Colonel Abdul Salam Arif led that revolution. <laughs> I had such high hopes for what they would bring to Iraq. But I wasn't excited for long. 
after they got rid of the Faisals, Qasim's ego, well, it got out of control. He monopolized power and didn't want to hear anything against what he thought was right. He became everything he promised to purge from our country. The hypocrite. But he would pay for it. The party recruited me to join the assassination squad to end Qasim's rule. I was the only one they trusted to carry it out. Follow him. Track his movements day and night. Day and night. We waited out in an apartment on El Rashid Street across from the Ministry of Defense building where Qasim came and went. Wait until he gets out of the car. Then ambush him. It was the perfect plan. I'll handle him, okay? I'll handle Qasim by myself. On the day, we finally got our chance. We approached Qasim's motorcade. I hid my gun under my coat. And we waited for his car to get closer. My men killed the driver. I fired. I saw Qasim drop to the bottom of the car. I got him. But I was shot in the leg. We fired more rounds and got out of there. The assassination attempt was October the 7th, 1959. It was a disaster. Saddam only nicked Qasim in the arm. He came out of the ambush more injured than his target. It was a deeply personal disappointment. The botched mission forced Saddam underground. Exposed as an assassin, and a bad one at that, Iraq was no longer a safe place for him. Saddam escaped to Syria for three months before fleeing to Egypt. It was a smart move. Back in Baghdad, Several of Saddam's men were captured and sentenced to death. Cairo was a turning point for me. I became engaged to my first cousin, Sajda, the daughter of my beloved uncle. She would give me two sons, Uday and Qusay, and three daughters, Rakhad, Rana, and Hala. In 1962, I began to study law. I loved higher education. I was always a voracious reader, but I had a bigger, more important calling. I was 24 when I dropped out to commit myself fully to the Ba'ath Party. I soon found out I had been sentenced to death in Baghdad for the attempted coup against Qasim, so... I wasn't going back to Iraq anytime soon. <laughs> Lucky for me, the man who inspired my Ba'ath party in Iraq was also fed up with Qasim's hypocrisy and betrayal. You see, Qasim went back on the promise to include Iraq in the Pan-Arab Republic. So the price on my head only made me look more impressive to my hero. Egypt's president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. I met Abdel Nasser at a Ba'athist club in Cairo. Mr. President, it's an honor to meet you. Let me introduce myself. Saddam Hussein Majid. He told me how to take back power in Iraq 
and make my homeland great. Saddam had a long fascination with Abdel Nasser, and as rulers, they would share similar qualities. They were both charismatic and persuasive. Both would also be accused of human rights violations and of using military force against their own people. As a close source to Saddam once put it, he was just in his injustice. If you were against him, he was against you. As Saddam learned from Abdel Nasser, the political situation in Iraq escalated to give him the chance to take those teachings back home. Qasim, who'd put the death sentence out on Saddam's head, was overthrown by a man who would succeed where Saddam failed, Ahmed Hassan al-Bakr. Al-Bakr and his cohorts executed Qasim after a quick tribunal. They shot him like the traitorous dog he was. Abdus Salam Arif assumed the presidency. My old cousin al-Bakr became prime minister. And they rolled out the red carpet for me to come home. <laughs> Al-Bakr made me a member of the security detail for the Ba'ath party. We made people respect the party. And I learned how to make people talk. So... I want you to tell us what we need to know. Are you ready now? But there was a power struggle at the top. Arif had the presidency, but Al-Bakr was the more popular. So it was time for Arif to go. My cousin trusted me to run the coup, but our plot was uncovered. I was arrested and sentenced to prison. Saddam was behind bars from 1964 until 1966, but the failed assassination attempt and prison time would benefit him in the long run. Prison is where the foundations of Saddam's political success were planted. He became more deeply involved with the Ba'ath Party from behind bars and built a strong bond with al-Bakr on the outside. Al-Bakr would later become leader of the Iraq wing of the Ba'ath Party. So, when Saddam broke out of prison, he cashed in on that bond and became much more than a gun for hire. I escaped with the help of some sympathetic guards. It pays to have friends in all corners of society. Go, go. God was on our side because Abdesalam Arif died in a helicopter crash. The Prime Minister stepped in to try and fill his shoes, but he only lasted a few days before. Arif's brother, Abdul Rahman, claimed the presidency. But he wouldn't last long either. He was weak. Unseating Abdul Rahman was easy. We took over the palace while he was sleeping. Marhaban. <laughs> Abdul Rahman, 
We regret to inform you, you're no longer president. The runt was so terrified, he fled to Turkey and left the men's work for us. With Al Bakr, now president, I had my first taste of real power. He promoted me to head of security. I showed my talents and proved my worth in no time. I became vice president. Not bad for a 31-year-old, huh? I was in charge of protecting our party against the invasions by Shia radicals and Kurdish separatists. I carried out unprecedented projects to build my great nation. I seized power over our richest natural resource, oil. I created free mandatory education programs for children. I raised literacy levels across the country. I introduced one of the most modern public healthcare systems in the Middle East. I also won an award from UNESCO. Yes, UNESCO, for wiping out illiteracy in Iraq. Thank you. It is a great honor to receive this award. A great honor. You think a bad guy would work so hard to give his country all of that? It's true. Saddam did do all those things to develop Iraq. And he did win the UNESCO award. But here's what Saddam's not telling you. While he was building hospitals and schools, he also launched the country's first chemical weapons program. He developed extreme anxiety over coups and assassination attempts and built a powerful security force around himself with members of the Ba'athist paramilitary and the People's Army. He instructed his security detail to crush any dissent with torture, rape and murder. Saddam was very powerful, but that was about to be threatened. And this is where it all changed for him and the people of Iraq. By 1979, al-Bakr was making moves to unite Ba'ath Party members in Iraq and Syria, which would mean Saddam's position would be handed off to a Syrian in Hafez al-Assad's regime. He wasn't going to let that happen. The official record is al-Bakr became sick and handed power over to Saddam. It's true that al-Bakr was getting old, but he didn't hand over power due to illness. One common version of how he succeeded is that Saddam and his loyalists encouraged al-Bakr to step down. On July the 16th, 1979, Saddam Hussein became the president of Iraq. My first order of business was to clean house. Once I took power, I gathered all the Ba'ath leaders together in Baghdad. I told them, I found spies and conspirators in our party. <laughs> no one saw that coming. The conspirators are many, but be assured, I will pick up my gun and fight to the end. They started to look at each other in denial. I surprised them even more when I read the list of asset sympathizers out loud. Tahar Ahmed Amin, Ismail Ibrahim al-Najjar, Bidan Fadr, 
As each man was named, he was escorted outside the hall. One by one, all the traitors were shot. I had to cleanse the ranks and show everyone the price of disloyalty. Get out! Get out! Without loyalty, the leader is nothing. I was just getting started as president when Ayatollah Ruhollah al-Khomeini took over Iran's Shah and started to plan an Islamic revolution. You have to understand, Khomeini's takeover wasn't just bad news for me. A lot of others wanted to stop him. The Kuwaitis, Saudis, and the Americans too. Khomeini was slippery. He took advantage of our national diversity. His game plan was to rally Shia and Kurdish families in Iraq to turn against me. I did what any great leader and defender of nations would do. Attack is the best form of defense. We fought for eight years. I cut Iran off at the knees and the arms and the neck. <laughs> I would destroy anyone who defied my rule, be they Sunni, Shia, or Kurdish. Of course, my enemies cry genocide for what happened in Halabja. But what do they know? Saddam's regime claimed that Iran was responsible for the attack. But what happened in Halabja was an opportunistic play. It was a mission to eradicate Kurdish populations in northern Iraq. The attacks involved dropping chemical weapons, including mustard gas, on civilian populations. Saddam's cousin, Ali Hassan al-Majid, was in charge of that. You might remember him as Chemical Ali. An estimated 5,000 Kurds, mostly women and children, were killed. The attacks earned Saddam the name Butcher of Baghdad. It was one massacre in a long, drawn-out, unsuccessful war with Iran that, despite Saddam's claims of victory, ended in a stalemate after eight years. And it left Iraq in crippling debt. Saddam owed billions to both the Kuwaitis and Saudis for their support. And when the war was over, Saddam was shocked when his neighbors asked for their money back. We told the Kuwaitis and Saudis, guys, I sacrificed my men and my fortune to protect you too. Those Kuwaitis, their oil wells were generating trillions. And did you know they share their precious Al-Rumayla oil field with our border? I'm not blind. While I'm busy protecting the entire region from Iran, Kuwait is stepping into our oil reserves. And I called them on it at the Arab summit in Baghdad in 1990. What do they do? Oversell oil shares on purpose so that prices drop and I'm forced 
to stay in debt. It was economic warfare. They wouldn't forgive our debts, even after they got rich off our backs. Saddam's dispute with Kuwait did not go unnoticed in the United States. By July the 25th, 1990, George H.W. Bush is in office. His ambassador to Iraq, April Glaspie, meets with members of the Iraqi High Command in the spirit of friendship, not confrontation. She asked why Iraqi troops had started swarming near the border with Kuwait. But she also emphasizes that America has no opinion on these Arab-to-Arab relations. It would later be debated if Saddam took this exchange as approval. On August the 2nd, 1990, Iraq's military forces, then the largest army in the Middle East, invaded Kuwait, sparking an international crisis. Everyone wanted a piece of Iraq. No one had the guts to take us on alone. That's how powerful and feared we were. The coalition against us was the largest one assembled since World War II. Don't tell me that's not impressive. Saddam certainly had the full attention of the US and the international community. He was ordered to withdraw his forces from Kuwait by January the 15th, 1991. Saddam refused. Operation Desert Storm took full effect two days later with an aerial and naval bombardment that went on for five weeks. On television, images from the front lines of the Gulf War dominated American media networks. An emerging network called CNN gained popularity as the only network providing round-the-clock coverage. New satellite and night vision technology gave people access to up-close wartime images for the very first time. It was referred to as the video game war. Ask any Arab, and they'll agree with me. Nobody asked the Americans to get involved in our business. That's when everybody in the so-called international community got really desperate. They imposed sanctions after sanctions on us. But I refused to let them see me sweat. I kept all my palace operating moving from one place to the other to keep my enemies on their toes. I protected myself for Iraq. And for my family, I would never let them live through abject poverty the way I did growing up. The truth is that while everyday citizens of Iraq suffered, Saddam and his family stockpiled their wealth. The UN demanded that Iraq destroy their weapons of mass destruction and ballistic missiles under supervision by UN weapons inspectors. Saddam again refused America's demands and publicly accused Washington of being an arrogant, blind power which sees nothing but its narrow interests. He then threatened that if UN inspections weren't stopped, Iraq would be forced to retaliate. He said, There is no way and no alternative to that course. Did you really think I was going to let them see what I had? Would the Americans let me see their weapons? 
I told all the American inspectors to leave. I wouldn't let any other damn inspector into my palaces. I told them I'd get rid of my weapons on my own. The rest of the 90s were marked by increasing civil unrest. Iraqis had enough of the sanctions imposed on them because of Saddam's actions. Frustrated with Saddam's refusal to cooperate, U.S. President Bill Clinton and British Prime Minister Tony Blair launched a four-day bombing attack on Baghdad in December of 1998. It was a brutal decision that was scrutinized by many that hurt Iraqi citizens more than Saddam and his loyalists. In January 2001, the U.S. inaugurated a new president, George W. Bush. I swear to God, my biggest punishment in life is that he made me deal with not one but two President Bushes. But I had nothing to do with what happened next. We have a breaking news story to a tell you about. A plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. It's like a second plane. United 93. Yeah, he's down. How did he land? He did not land. Let's look at the Pentagon. How now. large was the explosion? It was large. President George W. Bush was in office a mere nine months before the attacks on September the 11th, 2001, toppled the World Trade Center's Twin Towers. The Bush administration accused Saddam of having ties to Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda network, but this was never substantiated. How did they come up with the idea to link me to Al-Qaeda hijacking planes? I mean, sure, I don't like America, but, but come on! Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. That ignorant American man-child, Bush Jr., goes on TV and announces I'm part of some axis of evil with North Korea and our mortal enemies, Iran, and he actually pulled it off. He fooled the American public. Not that he needed approval, I mean, you call me a dictator? Those Bushes did whatever they wanted. And now we all know what I knew all along. All their lies and their ridiculous axis of evil propaganda was just a smoke and mirrors, an excuse to invade the great Iraq, to steal our riches. They only care about oil, profit, and their own power. On February the 23rd, 2003, Saddam agreed to his first appearance on an American broadcasting network in over a decade, and it would be his last. When asked how he felt about the possibility of invasion and even his death, he calmly replies, There is no value for any life without faith. On April the 9th, 2003, the Americans invaded Baghdad. Saddam was nowhere to be found. But in a symbolic gesture, they toppled Saddam's statue, flooding international media with images of Iraqis celebrating the fall of their leader. I knew I couldn't stick around in Baghdad. I had to keep my distance so I could focus on organizing our liberation battle. So I went to a farmhouse north of Tikrit. I went further underground, 
But I never gave up control of Iraq, like the Americans want you to believe. I went into hiding so I could strategize and wait for the perfect time to hit back and catch my enemies by surprise. I had my translators translate anything that would help me decide on the right tactics to confront the American troops. Mao Zedong's on guerrilla warfare is a personal favorite. We would need to take the battle to the streets when it was time to surprise and defeat the American allied forces. Interviews with Saddam's former translator reveal he never gave up power or gave up his belief that he would strike back, expel U.S. forces, and take back control of Iraq. For three months, he strategized underground while the intensive search for Saddam and his supporters continued. Finally, on July the 22nd, 2003, U.S. soldiers got close to Saddam by capturing and executing his sons, Oday, and Kusay in a raid on a villa in the northern city of Mosul. I left my sons in the hands of a trusted comrade, Nawafel Zaydan, but he betrayed me. Little did I know that the same snitch who caused my beloved sons, the future of Iraq, to be murdered, led the Americans to me too. No doubt you saw the staged propaganda of the Americans. Those convenient images of me in filthy clothes with my overgrown beard and hair and a tangled mess. Do you really think I would let myself go like that? The Americans made it look like they found me defeated in a hole in the ground. But really, I was biding my time in the luxury cellar of the house, waiting for the right moment to attack. Don't believe everything you hear. Indeed. That was on the 13th of December, 2003. His trial began in 2004. Critics around the world viewed it as a show trial that did not meet international standards. The trial of Saddam Hussein has often looked more like a theater than a courtroom. This is not a trial. This is not a trial. Even Amnesty International came to Saddam's defense, stating that the trial was unfair. And the former head of the Iraqi special tribunal that was trying Saddam accused the interim government of rushing the show trial to appease the international coalition against Iraq and cement their power. The whole trial was a sham. The Americans rigged it. The court was designed to remove me from power. They wanted to dismantle the great Iraq that I built. This is what the Americans do time and time again when they're threatened by another nation's power. Saddam would be sentenced to death for the mass murder of 148 civilians in the city of Dujail in 1982. He was transported to a U.S. Army base called Camp Justice in Baghdad, where he was executed by hanging on the 30th of December, 2006. The first day of the Muslim holiday, Eid al-Adha, his execution was broadcast on the national state television network, Iraqiya. The footage was accompanied by upbeat music. 
In the video's background, the executioners could be heard taunting Saddam. And just as he meets his demise, Saddam utters his final rallying cry. Just hours after his death, a grainy, pixelated video of his body, eyes closed, mouth open, rope wrapped round his neck, went viral. What you see in that footage, though, is in the eye of the beholder. To some Sunni Muslims, it was a celebration of Saddam's martyrdom and the sacrifices he made for his country. To others, like Shia Muslims and Iraq's Kurdish population, Saddam's death spelled freedom from tyranny and torture. And to others still, the footage of Saddam's execution gave them pause. Was it an act of justice or revenge? Saddam was buried where his story began, near his birthplace in Al-Awja, close to where his sons Oday and Kusay were laid to rest. Whether you see Saddam as he saw himself, a hero and martyr for his country, or a violent egomaniac, his mark on history is undeniable. The fact is, Iraq was weak before I came along. I turned it into a force to be reckoned with. Our army was the greatest in all the Middle East. We thrived, even as our enemies tried to bleed us dry. History has no mercy. Let history say its piece. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is series director Chris Kelly, series producers Lauren Berkovich, and Michael Tanko-Gran. Executive producers, Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Lima Alize. Saddam Hussein is played by Rad Rawi. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Associate producer, Lima Alize. Translated by Abdullah Al-Musalam. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer for this series. Fact-checking by Joy Lee. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Al Jazeera's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. <laughs> <laughs>